Isaiah 50, or Isaiah 19, and while you're turning there, because some of you are still looking for it, I had uh, a fascinating experience last night. Um, my wife and I were invited to uh, be a part of something that generally I don't really enjoy being a part of, the NRB, the National Religious Broadcasters Association, but, but we were invited there as friends, um, and uh, the ACLJ, for, for those of you that don't know, uh, helped us to get into this school, but we've been a part of... Uh, just the learning curve and the learning process of what you might know the ACLJ from uh, television. You know, Jay is uh, Jay Secular, the founder, is sometimes a, a pundit, you know, the talking head, that kind of guy. But what a lot of people don't know is that you know, obviously they've fought for our freedoms in our own country. The fact that we can actually meet in this school right now is because Jay and his team in 1990 won a case in New York that said that if, because we're Christians, we should not be discriminated against to meet in a school. That was 20 years ago. So we know him in that regard, but what a lot of people don't know is that he is not only fighting in this country, but internationally around the globe. He has an office in Pakistan uh, where they are defending the rights of persecuted Christians that are there. Uh, I, I sat next to Shurayer last night, who was a, a young uh, Pakistani boy who was uh, a translator for a missionary. And this missionary, uh, when he asked him, what do you want to do? What do you want to be? And he said, I want to be a lawyer. And, of course, there was no law school. And so this missionary spent the $300 a month to send Shurayer to a law school in Korea. And from there, he ended up, through a twist of events, through the same missionary, who actually happens to live in Nashville, coincidentally, to Regents University, where he ends up sitting next to Jay's son, Jordan Seculo, going to law school. And now Sherer, as a 30-year-old young man, is a lawyer in Washington who is fighting for the rights of his own people back home in Pakistan, where the cases they're working on are you know, uh, people who uh, were converted to Christianity and are now on trial for their lives because they converted. He told me a story yesterday of a, of a man that was a governor who was shot 27 times by his own bodyguard because he had talked uh, down about Sharia law. And so here's this guy who's being, you know, they can't even find a lawyer to prosecute him. But a hundred attorneys have signed up to be able to defend him. He said on the first day of trial that they, all these other attorneys and people were throwing roses and celebrating this guy. It, that's in Pakistan, but that's something that they're doing with the ACLJ. I sat next to, on the other side, a lady named Jahan, who was from southern Sudan. And if you have watched the news at all this past month, you might remember that there was a vote, a referendum that just happened in Sudan, where the southern Sudan is splitting off from northern Sudan. In northern Sudan, it is Islamic, radical Islam that is controlling it. Southern Sudan are Christians, and they had a vote and a referendum and split off the north and the south. It passed overwhelmingly. And so Jay and his team just got back from southern Sudan, where they're helping this new nation, this brand new country. They're, they're literally running out of trailers right now. It's a God-forsaken, so to speak, barren wasteland, running their government out of trailers. They're helping them to write the constitution of this young nation. Like Jeffersonian Africans over there putting together their, their, their constitution. And 
I sat on the other side of the table was a guy named Asher who was from Egypt. And I asked him, hey, so have you been there lately? And his exact words were, are you crazy? <laughs> like, okay, that's true. That's a fair question. Um, and he explained to me that what's going on there is very ominous, very dangerous. And it, I felt like a fortuitous time. I mean, we didn't know we were going to be sitting with any of these folks. I had no idea. And knowing what the Lord had put on our hearts to talk about these next few weeks, I just felt like, of course I'm sitting next to these guys. Um, and it hit me not long ago because at Conduit, we are, we're just what we say we are. We're a conduit of his resources, of his love, of his spirit to the community in front of us, to the world around us. And we specifically are concerned about the poor, about the oppressed, about the marginalized. And when Jahan stood up last night, she talked about as a Christian in Sudan that she was, and her exact words were, marginalized. So that everything, the power center was in Khartoum, that it was in the center of the country. And that's where all the development, even though the oil was in our part of the country, the development was there. We were marginalized. And when you say and you think, well, what is radical Islam? What does that have to do with anything that we're doing, As whether it's in Haiti or whether it's in Africa? And I want you to know that I believe it has everything to do with it. Just last month, there was an image on the, on, on the news of a, a family of a, a, a woman who was being flogged in the streets, beaten a hundred times, and the videos are still there. You can still find them. There was an image of a woman who'd been buried her waist up and, and stoned to death. That wasn't in Pakistan. That was in Africa. And I say that if, you can, if you're concerned and you care about Africa, you have to care about this. If you care about the poor, the oppressed, and the marginalized, you have to care about this subject, about what's going on. Because if you read any of their literature, that's their first line. What they're doing in Kenya right now is setting a table. They're less than 5% Muslim population in Kenya. But they have a seat at the table as Kenya is trying to put together laws and rules. In Zimbabwe, again, 5% Islamic. But at the table while they're writing their nation's constitution right now are Islamic radicals who would like to put Sharia law into being there. In our own country, they're making it a Second Amendment right. I I know that you you think, oh, this guy's going all Glenn Beck on me. Hear hear me out on this. This is Anderson Cooper. (laughs) In our own country... They're making it a Second Amendment issue because it's, for, it's religious freedom. In our own country, there were seven honor killings in the last few years of a man who was killing his wife because of infidelity, because something, and it was, and, and here's my, in Sharia law, they are allowed to do that. One of the most notable was a family in New York City. The husband killed his wife, cut her head off. The man was the owner of Bridge TV. Bridge TV developed as a, as a network. You can find it right now on CNN.com. As a network, this network was designed to reach out to Americans to show that Islamic is, Islam is a religion of peace. The founder of this network cut his wife's head off because they were going through a divorce and she was unfaithful in our own country. And so I say to you this now, and the reason I've had you turn to Isaiah 19 is because in the news all around us, This seems like a heavy subject. You're like, well, Darren, somebody got their head cut off. That's bad news. Absolutely. This is heavy and it's serious and it's somber. But I want to skip ahead because 
I want you to see this in Isaiah 19. Egypt has been all over the news this past month. Yesterday, hundreds of thousands of protesters still in the square in Egypt. It's not over yet. It's not over. What's anything, not even close to over yet. This is just getting warmed up. But I want you to read with me first in Isaiah 19, verse 16. In that day, the Egyptians will be like women. Now, none of women I know. The other translation is weaklings. So they've never met my wife is all I know. Isaiah had never met Shannon Tyler when he wrote that. They will shudder with fear at the uplifted hand that the Lord Almighty raises against them. This is talking about Egypt. And the land of Judah will bring terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom Judah is mentioned will be terrified because of what the Lord Almighty is planning against them. And in that day, five cities in Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord Almighty. One of them will be called the city of destruction, meaning it was, a, it was destroyed. And it goes on to say in verse 19, In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt and a monument to the Lord as its border. It will be a sign and witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt. And when they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and he will rescue them. So the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And in that day, they will acknowledge the Lord and they will worship with sacrifices and grain offerings. And they will make vows to the Lord and keep them. They will strike Egypt. The Lord will strike Egypt with a plague. He will strike them and heal them. They will turn to the Lord and he will respond to their pleas and heal them. And look at this for you geopolitical students. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. Assyria, which is modern-day Iraq and Iran. A highway that will go between those two. And the, uh, the Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be third, along with Egypt and Assyria. A blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. I read that to you because... I want you to know the end game. I want you to see that this is where the Lord is heading. God has not lost control. He's not off the throne. He's not even caught off guard. This is what is going to happen. And so I say that because when you watch what's happening on the news, it'll make your blood boil. it'll, It'll make your blood pressure go up. It gets you a little spooked. Like, what on earth is going on? And I, I read that to say that in that day, the day of the Lord, and, and those of you that might say, oh, Darren, th- but that's talking about when the Assyrians are going to invade. And I want you to hear this principle, the principle of double fulfillment in prophecy. When you look to verse chapter 20, you'll say, yeah, that does, there's talking about the Assyrians, but there are things in there that have not happened. Five cities in Egypt that, are, that speak Hebrew, that are speaking the you know, Jewish language, worshiping the Lord side by side, those are things that have not been fulfilled yet. I believe with all of my heart that they are coming, they are in our future. And so when we talk about radical Islam, when we talk about Arabic states, we have to remember the end game. That is what God is going to do. He is not out of control. This is fully under his watch. He knows what's happening. He will return. He will fulfill these words. This, it didn't even seem possible just a month ago what's happening right now. I mean, Libya, this is crazy what's happening. It's amazing. Daniel 11 happening right in front of our eyes. 
the nations in the south coming together. It, we'll, we'll, I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> to, to understand this. As, as a pastor, think, okay, as a church, if we are going to be on the offense this year, which I felt the Lord has called us to be and to do, then we've got to be concerned with our brothers and sisters that are in these nations. In Matthew 25, the chapter that we quote, so, you know, when you've done it for the least of these brothers of mine, when you take back the lens into the broader context of what he's saying, he's talking about, the, the end, Matthew 24, that, that you will be you know, carried off in my name. So he's talking about persecuted Christians being beaten and, and tortured. And when you've done it for the least of these brothers of mine referring to those, then you've done it unto me. We can't forget that. We can use that principle absolutely with our brothers and sisters anywhere in the world. But we can't just mark off the Middle East and Northern Africa because it's scary. We just can't. And when I look at this, and I see where God is going with it, and I see that Egypt, that God is going to set up shop there. He's, they're going to worship him right alongside with us. It gives me peace. But in the meantime, I really need to understand what's going on. Because let me tell you what, if it's clear to this, that when you think of Islam, for instance, we think of the Muslim faith. Do you think of it as being this sort of monolithic, international Religion, right? We think of Islam. We, that's what we know of it. It's Islam. And we maybe know there are nuances and things, but we don't really understand it. I believe it's imperative that we understand it because then we know who our enemy is and how to work in that. And we're going to get there. We're going to talk about it because I believe that God is giving us a vision and a picture of what we can do, our little nickel and dime operation, how we can affect the globe. But first, we got to understand it. And the first thing you got to understand about Islam is that it is not monolithic. It isn't just a, you know, just like the Protestants. It's, it's much more complex, much more sophisticated than that. It started in 622 when Muhammad was given a vision that, by the way, he originally thought, by his own words written, that it was demons talking to him. And it was his wife that told him, oh, no, no, this is, this is Jesus that has appeared to you and the prophet and you've got, you know... But that's what he originally thought. But he, he, in 622, sets up shop in Medina, which is modern-day Saudi Arabia. And that was going to be... And look, you're thinking, Darren, I did not come for History Channel. Please hang with me. Please. In 622, he sets up shop in Medina, okay? And that is going to be the new theocracy, the city-state government, the, the, the mothership of Islamic faith. And it was going great until he died 10 years later. And when he died, like often happens in these things, now who's going to be in control? And so on one side, and look, if you've got a uh, piece of paper, it might, I'm a visual thinker, so it might help you to just draw a line down the middle of a piece of paper. And, and on one side, I want you to write Shia on the left side. Because on one side of it was a guy named Ali. Now, Ali was his son-in-law and cousin, and it was not in Arkansas. I'll apologize to the... I'm from Nebraska. I got no room to talk. It was his son-in-law and his cousin, and the idea was that he should be the successor because he was in the bloodline of him, okay? That's on the left side of your piece of paper. On the right side, I want you to write the word Sunni, 
and know that on the other side was his father-in-law, a guy named Abu Abahar, okay? Abu was the father-in-law, and the Sunnis felt like that was the guy. No, he's our dude. He was his mentor. He knows what's going on. He has his ear. That should be the guy. And from that moment was born on the left and on the right what would become today, as you know, as Sunni and Shiite Islam. You'll hear those terms in the news. That's what they're talking about. Now, here's what goes down. On the son-in-law side, the, the bloodline side, they're set up. They're rolling along. On the other side, you got dad-in-law. They're rolling along. And inside of 20 years, they're killing each other. The, 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 the Sunnis are, are killing the other side. And it, it all, it's literally war and blood has started within 20 years of this. And, and here is the reason why. <coughs> I'm going to need some coffee. If you'll, can I have some beverage music, please? I'm just kidding. I, just, you, I hate to be that guy, you know. On the Shia side of it, they're at the funeral, okay, of their guy that was murdered. And his son is at this funeral. Okay, now keep in mind, this is bloodline. They think they're the guy, and they're at this funeral of the guy that was just murdered. And the young son of this guy that was murdered, the successor, who was known as the 11th Imam, his son is now murdered. I mean, so he's murdered, and his son is at the funeral. I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. And the son, according to Islam, disappears. He's just gone. And if you've heard the phrase, the 12th Imam, that's him. They believe that he is coming back. Now, keeping in mind, when you hear Shia, that is Iran and it is Iraq. They are Shia. And they believe that the 12th Imam is going to return. And it's going to be amongst bloodshed and war that they themselves can hasten, can quicken up if they themselves bring this bloodshed. And so when you hear a guy like Ahmadinejad, the president of Iran, by the way, elected president of Iran, two years ago, he comes to the United States, he's at the UN, and it's like you got Mike Wallace and all these guys are interviewing him and asking him about his suit coat, and, and nobody thinks to ask him about his theology. Anderson Cooper, nobody. Nobody's saying anything to him about it. He speaks to the assembly, the UN assembly, and he ends with a prayer that we can speed up the return of the Mahdi, the 12th Imam. Bring him back quickly. You've got the Shia side of things. It's Iraq and Iran. On the other side, you've got the Sunnis. Now you think, thank God, because the Sunnis make up probably 80, by some estimates, 85% of Islam. And Shia is only 15 to 20%. And you think, well, good, thank God for that, because at least the majority, those guys are sane. So on the other side, you've got Sunni. And from Sunni is they actually say, look, we don't like Iran at all. We, this whole thing about you know, nuclear war and hastening it, they don't believe that the imam is going to return in that nature. So when you see like Saudi Arabia, Egypt, these guys siding with us, that's because they think he's nuts too. They don't believe that nuclear war is going to do anything. And so they've got their fingers crossed that either the United States or Israel will do something. 
But before we give them a pass, we got to understand that Osama bin Laden is Sunni. How many of the young men that died in our planes were from Saudi Arabia and Egypt who were Sunni? Now, what drives Shia is their eschatology. It's like Tim LaHaye on crack. Okay, they got this idea, this, this thing of like this eschatology, the anti, you know, it's like bizarro Superman. Do you remember? He ever, it was the exact opposite of everything Superman was. It's what's happened. The enemy has created this counterfeit in Shia. And in Sunni, they're not driven by eschatology. They're driven by jihad. You've heard that phrase. And what they believe, and I know that I'm making broad and sweeping statements when I say they. I know that the king of Morocco, for instance, has instituted a 12-step program, seriously, to make his country moderate. He's reaching out to the others. So when I say they, I know I'm making sweeping statements. And someone would say, well, Darren, it's only 10% of Muslims are radical. I got news for you. That's 100 million. If there are a billion Muslims in the world, we're talking about 100 million people that are thinking this. Okay, So just sit with me and think with me on, on this. So you've got them not thinking about eschatology. They're thinking about, uh, uh, about jihad. And in jihad, you've heard, well, no, jihad means that it's the war within yourself to fight. It's inner jihad. It's uh, greater jihad is what it's referred to in their faith, the fight of, of sin. And if I can d- conquer my sin, the war in that. But there is what is known as a lesser jihad, an outer jihad that Muhammad himself talks about in the Quran, where we, they are allowed to encourage to, to fight. And my brother last night from Egypt said that that word fight, he says the problem when you're translating into English is sometimes those words don't translate. That word means to kill the unbeliever. So, so when they say that, that's actually in there. We just don't have the word that they have in their language for it. So we translate it to fight, trying to make it work. And when they are saying to us that they want to convert or we be killed, that is what their goal is. That is what Osama's goal is. It is what these radical clerics goals are that are speaking in our own schools and our own soil. In It's why you've got heads of state from uh, England, from France, from Germany, saying that our idea of multiculturalism flopped. It was a huge blunder, a huge failure, because we said, come to here, and we were more concerned about the rights of those coming than we were the rights that were already here. And so what's happened now is they're over there going, wow, this was a huge mistake. And they're saying it because the radicals. And again, I know that there are you know, it's people, I have Muslims that are friends. I do too. So I understand that I don't think that if you have a Muslim that's a neighbor, that you have to be afraid of them. Don't get me. I'm not saying that. But I'm painting a big picture for you of what is true. And then we're going to talk about, well, now what do we do? But in the meantime, we have Sunnis who are so far our allies. And we have Shia who would like to just blow the whole thing up and let their guy come back. These are ominous times because when you think about it, like in the 80s when we were talking about nuclear war, I mean, one thing we, we hoped was true and we found it later was true was the Russians didn't want to die either. The mutually, a mutually assured destruction. You're not old enough if you're young to remember this, but it was the idea that if I nuke you, you nuke me and we both die. So nobody nuked anybody. That kind of falls apart when you're talking about a, theolo- a theological nut job who actually thinks that that's actually going to be helpful to him, that he would survive it. That's a problem. These are ominous times because of that. They're ominous times when you've got on the other side guys that will put up with us 
because of what we are helping them with as far as keeping Iran at bay from them, Saudi Arabia and Egypt. We have a little bit of a problem, though, because the leaders in these nations just saw us sell our ally up the river. And don't get me wrong, I do not, I'm not here to defend Mubarak at all. I, 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 he was a dictator, I get it. But if you're in Saudi Arabia and you were the leader, you'd have said, man, with friends like these, who needs enemies? And you're watching them making relationships with China, with Venezuela, places where they can have oil, where they can have gas, where they, they, they also can make these alliances. Because they're looking at us going, wow, that really didn't work out like I thought. And, and I don't mean to make this a political statement, I'm sorry, if, if you feel it is. But what's happening on the ground over there is much more sophisticated than what you can get in a 30-second soundbite. And I encourage you to understand that. I encourage you to, to research for your own right and to look now and to say that, that's great, Darren. Now you just scared the crap out of me. Now what? Look back with me. This is going to happen in Egypt. They're going to be, you know, Jehovah says, I'm going to set up shop here. Uh, Israel is going to be there. We're all going to be friends. That's what's going to happen. But what's going to happen first is verse 1 of chapter 19. An oracle concerning Egypt. See, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. The idols of Egypt tremble before him and the hearts of the Egyptians melt within them. And I will stir up Egyptian against Egyptian. Brother will fight against brother. That was a headline on CNN last week or two weeks ago. Brother against brother. They were fighting each other. Neighbor against neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. The Egyptians will lose heart and I will bring their plans to nothing. They will consult the idols and the spirits of the dead. Remember what I said about Muhammad? That when he first saw the vision to begin with for Islam, that he, thought it, he himself thought it was spirits and demons. They will consult. Uh, the, and I will hand Egypt over, verse 4. To the power of a cruel master and a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord God Almighty. When I look at that and I see what's already happening in Egypt, I think this is insane. How is this even possible that this is even happening in our own time? It's remarkable. Handing him over to a, a cruel king. And I want you to know that I believe, just like you do probably, that this was started in the streets of Egypt by good people by hardworking people that were being oppressed by a dictator. I believe that. I also believe that the movement can be, quite honestly, probably will be, hijacked, co-opted by an organization that you've also heard in the news. And there's this big, well, are they evil? Are they what? You know, the Muslim Brotherhood. Are they a secular organization? Brother against brother, the Muslim Brotherhood. An organization founded after World War I, after Israel was given, the Jewish people were being brought home and then World War II happened. But before that, the Ottomans sided with Germany. It was the center of Islamic power and prestige. And they were, their butts were handed to them, quite honestly, in the war. And so they were humiliated. And so after that, these guys formed this organization called the Muslim Brotherhood because they're saying, man, Turkey, you blew it. It was because you let this happen. The Western powers came in. And so we need to form this organization called the Muslim Brotherhood whose purpose, you can find it online, just Google it. Their, their charter is publicly available, is to spread Islam and Sharia in the land, to bring Islamic power back to 
prestige and to the top. And they believe that they want to do that in Egypt. This guy that spoke Friday in Egypt, he had been banned for the last 30 years. Sounds like it's really bad. Why would you ban somebody? That's really mean. Mubarak must be a jerk. But listen, this is what, his name is Karadawi, an Islamic scholar. An article in uh, Der Spiegel in Germany this Last week ran this story. This guy just spoke for uh, their prayers on Friday in Egypt, came home for the first time in 30 years. It says that Qardawi advocates the establishing of a united Muslim nations as a contemporary form of the caliphate and the only alternative to the homogeny of the West. He hates Israel and would love to take up arms himself. In one of his sermons, he asked God to kill the Jewish Zionists, every last one of them. That's the guy that just came back to Egypt as a political power that can be now democratically elected. He wants to build a democratic, or I mean, a, a Muslim alliance nation, of course, under Sharia law. And think with me, just look, I, we're, we're, I know we went to the scripture, but just think with me for just a second. In the South, right, you had on the right, left side of your paper, you had Shia and their eschatology, and you got this guy that wants to bring nuclear war. He's in the North, okay? Now, keeping in mind that what we just did in Iraq a few years ago, was we took out a guy from power named Saddam Hussein. Remember him? In the 80s, if you're old enough, which many of us are, while Cindy Lauper was roaring up the charts, in Iraq was a guy named Saddam Hussein who came to power in a Shiite nation. One problem, he was a Sunni. In a nation that's 80% Shiite, a Sunni guy, and he began immediately to oppress the Shiites. And when our guy, our guy, in Iran. We, have you ever noticed when we get involved and start meddling around putting our guy in place, it never works out, but that's a whole other conversation. But our guy gets kicked out of Iran, and I'm sorry if this bores you, but hang with me. Our guy gets kicked out, and Saddam's like, oh, geez, this is not good. So he invades Iran. Do you remember this? And he invades Iran because his Shiite people, he doesn't want them getting any ideas. His Shiite neighbor, Iran, he doesn't want them coming in and taking over because it's a Shiite nation. This is Assyria. Iran and Iraq were one nation called Assyria. We just read about them. In eight years, they literally beat each other into the ground. There were stories and videos of them sending their little boys into minefields by the thousands. That was their minesweeper. You're 10 years old. Go out there and see what happens. For eight years, these guys bludgeoned and beat each other into the ground, and ultimately a stalemate was declared. We did in two years what Shiites couldn't do in eight years, Inadvertently, I, I don't know what your political standing is. You don't know mine. It doesn't matter. Inadvertently, on the big 32,000-foot view, it seems like what we did was allow for a power vacuum that will allow the Shiites to remain in power, come back to power. They're in power right now over there. So that when an alliance is formed that Daniel 11 talks about, the kings of the north, Iran and Iraq in the north, will war against the kings of the south. And now you have nations, Egypt, Libya, Tunisia, that were all ran by semi and quasi secular guys who are now either out of power or on their way out of power, another power vacuum in place that can allow for an alliance to be formed for their nations that, quite honestly, want to fight each other. And, and I say that not to scare you again. It's like this is, God knew this was going to happen thousands of years ago. You don't have to be panicked when you read it because you can think, oh, for millions of years, before you were ever even born, this was already in motion. God knew this was going to happen. 
You don't have to be afraid. And when I read any one of these things, when I see it on the news, the tendency, of course, is to be afraid. The tendency is to be paralyzed. The tendency is to move to Montana, buy some guns, and hold yourself up until Jesus gets back. And I want you to know that I think that is the exact opposite of what we should be doing. What I want to tell you this morning is that I believe that our time is short. And when you read words like this, it tends to leave us a little unsettled, a little spooked. And Paul would say, when you get that feeling, in 1 Thessalonians 5, you could go there later if you want. 1 Thessalonians 4, I'm sorry. He would say, when you're a little spooked about these things, to therefore encourage each other with these words. In verse 18. What words? Verse 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven... And with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with those words. So when you've got Drudge Report getting you a little scared, when Glenn Beck gets your blood pressure up, when Anderson Cooper lets you down, when you don't know what to think. I mean, I got gas this week. When you don't know what to think, comfort each other with these words. And yes, I understood the double entendre that I just did. <laughs> In case you're wondering. <laughs> Thought if I didn't acknowledge it, but no, that's not true. <laughs> It was after Village on Friday night. <laughs> Comfort one another with these words that the Lord is returning. He is not afraid and he is going to open up a can of whoop God and he's going to take care of business. It just is. It just is. And the same faith that I have that brought me to the kingdom brings me to that moment of knowing that these guys are not good guys. They're not nice guys. Is Islam a religion of peace? I don't know. Best I can tell. No. What I do know is this, is that Jesus is. By the way, I asked the guy last night from Egypt, is Islam a religion of peace? He said, I'll ask you, see if you can find the word peace in the Quran." He said, look, see if the word love is in the book. I went home and it's not. It's just not there. So he says, you tell me. The point is this, though. They are... No question about it, our enemies. Not by any of our own, but their declaration on us. They hate us. Ahmadinejad last week was talking about that what's happening right now in his speech in Iran is the work of the 12th Imam, setting it up. He says that the end has begun. It's happened. This is the speech he gave. While chants of death to America, death to Israel are being chanted by the hundreds of thousands in the streets. They hate us. Jesus said that we are to love our enemies. What does that mean? What does that look like? What do we do about it? We're going to talk about it next week. I believe that God is moving some pieces in place for us as to what we're to do as a church. 
I needed to set the tone, I felt, to, if nothing else, you at least have, when I start using words like Sunni and Shia, that you kind of know what's going on. So that you can, when you're having a conversation, have an intelligent conversation. There was an article last year of a guy that basically started cornering congressmen and Democrats and asking if they knew the difference between Sunni and Shia. Like 10% of them did. And we're over there blowing him up. They have no idea even the differences in them, right? We need to understand what's going on as believers. Our government, absolutely, you would hope that they would. But we, as believers, need to know. Because we've got people in Africa. We're in Togo, Africa, which is northwest Africa. Islam is slowly encroaching. Sudan, Somalia. Remember Somalia? It's all over the news. Islam. Sudan, Islam. Libya, Egypt. Tunisia, it's, it's slowly encroaching down into Kenya and Uganda. Well, now I'm getting into next week's message, aren't I? We'll talk about it next week. Until then, as we worship, guys, if you, if you want to join us to, to worship, I want you to remember, obviously, that there's an education. There's a piece that we need to understand. But if you don't leave here with anything else in your heart and in your mind, it's that I want to encourage you with these words that the Lord is going to return with a shout and we will be with him forever. This was all on his radar screen. It's all him in the middle. He knows what's happening. You don't have to be afraid. If you are, it's Satan. Fear paralyzes. Of course he wants you to be afraid because then you're paralyzed. You don't do anything. What better weapon could the enemy have against us? And as a church, I want to be on record as saying we're not backing down. We're not hiding out. We're expanding what's going on in Haiti. We're expanding what's going on in Togo, Africa. We're expanding in India. Ukraine. And I'll tell you next week about some stuff that I believe we're supposed to be doing in the Middle East. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are encouraged by you. With the rest of the world, I, I, don't know how, I don't know how if you don't know you that you can survive in this day without pulling your hair out. But we know you and we know that you're in control and so we know that we can actually have peace that passes all understanding. And our prayer is, Lord, that you would teach us to be your hands and your feet. Not just with our brothers and sisters in Haiti and Africa, but your hands and feet with our enemies in Islam. And Lord, that your kingdom will come, that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It was your prayer that you taught us to pray. And you meant it literally that your kingdom would in fact come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are encouraged today, Lord, by that. There is hope in what is happening in this day because you, Jesus, not our president, not their president, you bring us that hope. We thank you for that, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.